Psalm 13, another very short psalm, uh, perhaps will not take us too long this evening to get through it. I'll read it as always the whole thing and then we'll talk about it a little bit together. Psalm 13, to the chief musician, a psalm of David, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eye, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say, enemies say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. So uh, not a lot of introduction here. Psalm of David to the chief musician. We don't see anything else particularly about it. Uh, a, very, uh, a psalm that is reminiscent of what we've already seen many times. Notice the structure of this psalm. I'd imagine that if you were reading through it uh, uh, a couple of times, you would see this structure uh, quite quickly. Uh, chapter uh, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 and 4, and verses 5 and 6, right? The first two verses are questions. Uh, the second two, uh, two, the second set of two verses uh, is the request, and then the third set of two verses is the confidence or, or the reminder, right? And so we see this very basic structure, a very simple structure. Be looking for these structures when you get into the Psalms. We have not spent a great deal of time talking through the various elements of, of parallelism necessarily or the various elements of structure unless the structure has a, a, a unique and a particular value to the psalm itself. But be looking for them. These are, these are songs. These are, are, are poems. And so to that end, they do have structure. That structure doesn't necessarily always come out as clearly in the English as it, it would in the Hebrew, um, but it is there nonetheless. And so we have these first two verses. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord, forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Well, we hear these things, and it's intended to in invoke meditation. And so I, I brought a, a couple of questions with me this evening that are worth our thinking about as it relates to these things. Because these are questions uh, that, as we see David express them, the, the, the expressions that we find here are expressions of frustration, they're expressions of sorrow, they're expressions uh, not necessarily of faithlessness per se, but of weakness, the weakness of the flesh, right? And, uh, and the expressions of the soul in times of trouble. Um, it, you're familiar, I think all of us, even those of us that don't have children, are familiar with how children perceive time, right? Uh, if, if there's something, my, my wife and I have taken to not necessarily giving the date and the time of, say, vacations, because if you tell the children we're leaving in a week, uh, as and sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But if we do, then every day is, is it tomorrow? Is it, you know, how long, why, why is it taking so long, really? And, and, you know, all of a sudden a week becomes a very, very long time, not just for them, but 
by extension for me, right? Because they're asking again and again and again, is it time yet? Is it there yet? And, and, and the same perhaps when you're in the car, right? And you're driving somewhere and, and um, oh, it's a very long drive, right? It's a very long drive because they want to get to where they were going. And so it, it's a, it, they perceive it to be a very long drive. And, and, and so we have these questions here, how long wilt thou and of course, the question, forget me, hide thy face from me. These are the, the expressions, the feelings of uh, words of abandonment uh, or of a, a, a ignoring, of negligence. Um, and yet the idea behind them, as we've seen poetically already throughout the psalm, and as we know from the end of this psalm, is not that, the, that, that David feels as though God has abandoned him, but only rather that it feels that way. Right? This is not necessarily an uncommon feeling, even among those who love God. We talk about the idea that it's not sin to be tempted, right? It's when lust hath conceived that it bringeth forth sin, right? Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. It's not wrong inherently to be human. It's it's wrong when we allow our humanity to, to, to take us past the lines of God's empowerment, of God's sustenance, and, and of God's will. So David is expressing these feelings here, which are probably not unfamiliar feelings to you. And if they are unfamiliar feelings to you, just wait. Give it time. And there will be, there will be a time where you will feel this way, not that you do not know that God is there, but that you don't feel it at that moment. That you're, you're struggling to understand what God is doing. And as I was studying this psalm, the only word that, that kept bubbling up is the word wait. The frustration of those times where we have to wait, where there's nothing else to do. And if we did do something, it would probably be in our own power and might make things worse, not better. And we simply have to wait. And waiting is sometimes the hardest thing, right? Because it leaves us feeling vulnerable. We've seen this in the last year. We've seen this with, uh, uh, we, we talked about it a little bit when, during, during the lockdowns. Um, the, 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 toilet, the great toilet paper, um, the great toilet paper, the run on the toilet paper, right? What, what was happening there? Why did it happen? There was no need for it to happen. Not only was there no supply pinch uh, uh, as it related to that directly until people were buying it out like crazy, but um, of all the things that you would need in a pinch, toilet paper ain't one of them. I mean, there are plenty of reusable, renewable things that can be used and washed and reused that, that, we, that, that we, if you have washcloths in your house, you're going to be just fine, right? But Why? because people felt like they needed to do something. And even if it's not helping, it's doing something. And we could talk about that as it relates to masks and whatever else as well. You're doing something, right? And because you're doing something, you feel like at least something is better than nothing. But what happens when you've done your part and, and, and you can't do anything about, say, an enemy, and now it's simply up to God? That can be a tough spot, can't it? Or maybe it's something not enemy-related. You, you've, you've done your part, things have happened, and now you're simply waiting for the outcomes. 
You've said what you've need to, needed to say to that person and you don't know how they're going to respond and now you simply have to wait. You've done everything you can to provide for your family. You've done everything you can to, to help your child. You've done everything you can to fill in the blank. And now you simply have to wait. And David was, it would seem to be in a place where an enemy was exalted over him. Again, we could run through scenarios. This one gives us very little uh, as far as by, by way of what enemy that might have been. You know, Saul, uh, Absalom, we don't know. Some enemy was exalted over him and he is in sorrow and he feels as though God is not there. So this is where we take what we know and we impose it upon what we feel. Right? Because we do not want to be people who, we, we, we don't want to be people that cease to feel. That's not a good place to be. And sometimes in Christianity, we, uh, we, we make people, if we're not careful, we can make people feel bad for feeling. And we need to be careful about that. That when a person is deeply sorrow, sorrowful, that doesn't mean that they don't have any trust in God or they don't have any faith. When a person is going through a fearful time, that does not mean that they don't have any faith. As a matter of fact, quite often, no one can be harder on me than me when I'm feeling anxious or fearful or frustrated when I know I should not be. But we are human. And again, this is not an excuse, but this is a reason. So we, we need to allow, however, in, the in these times of emotionalism, in these times where we're feeling these ways, we need to allow what we know to override how we feel. This is difficult in our society today because our society is driven by emotion. We are an not just an emotive society, but we are a society that has been, has been trained to act exclusively, nearly, on emotional response uh, and emotional stimulus. And then we allow our reasons and our actions to bend around our emotional ideas or presuppositions. So, how long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Well, the first thing we need to do, what do we know about time? Time as it relates to me, time as it relates to God. If... When you're feeling this idea of how long, God, how long will you hide your face from me? How long will you forget me? How long will my heart be in sorrow? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? As it relates to that idea of how long itself, what would come into your heart and your mind about, uh, in relation to knowledge in a time when you are thinking the same thought, how long? What knowledge could you bring, what biblical knowledge could you bring to bear on the idea of how long? Hmm. Yeah, the idea of Abraham and Sarah waiting for a heir, right? And Abraham even asking God when God came up to him and said, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And, and Abraham said, I have no heir. What do you, what do you mean? How, how, how can you give me this seed when I have no heir? And, and God said, you will have one, right? Good. 
example? Uh, Andrea, do you? Mm -hmm. God is not in time, right? So time to us is not time to God. And yet God also knows we are in time, right? And God deals with us in time, hence sending Jesus to die on the cross in time, right? And so we know God knows time, but God is not beholden to our time. Anything else? I, uh, I think here, and it's not, it's, it's perhaps related to both the first and the second question, but um, Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. My timetable versus God's timetable, right? I have a timetable. I want things resolved. I want this. I want that. But God's timetable time is not my timetable. God's way is not my way. Any other thoughts on time? Nathaniel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, time will tick, right? It will continue. And by the way, barring uh, a, a trial that will end in my eventual demise, um, time will, the sun will keep rising and the sun will keep setting through whatever circumstance I'm going in, right? Life will, life goes on. And time is relative. Um, and this is what we spoke of. While the, while the clock ticks at a, at a, well, not that clock, but a typical, a real clock ticks, the, time ticks, can we put it that way? Time ticks at a, at a consistent rate. This clock is better than the last one. Um, much better. But uh, while, while time moves at a consistent rate as it would relate to, to uh, the way God has created it, again, my relationship of my, the relationship of my senses to time is somewhat relative, isn't it? It's always harder to wait when you're struggling. And sometimes that feeling of urgency is all the more reason to slow down. So, that gives that, that, that very nicely transitions us to the second thought. What do you know about waiting on God? It takes time. Yep, waiting on God. That's right. That's right. It absolutely does take time. Very good. And we have to, if we're going to wait on God, then we have to wait, right? And waiting takes time. That's the point of waiting. Andrea? Mm-hmm. Yep, God doesn't waste time and God doesn't waste trouble on us, right? Sarah? And waiting on God does not mean sitting still and saying, like twiddling your thumbs means usually he's waiting on you to be in a state where you can actually handle what he wants to give you. And so you need to be growing and keep following and keep doing the next thing that he's told you to do, not just sitting still. Waiting on God is often intended to be a period of growth. So if my son says, Dad, when can I learn to drive? And I say, son, you've got to be older. Oh, okay, I'll get older then. Uh, no, this is only something that time can fix, right? It's going to take time to get taller. It's going to take time to get stronger. It's going to take time to develop. And you can't really shortcut that. Right? Because what do you need to get bigger, taller, stronger? Well, there are some things that you can do to mature, but at the end of the day, 
It just takes time, right? And what if the reason why I am not where I think I need to be right now is because God knows I should not be there yet or I'm not ready for it yet? What if I try to jump ahead of God and I am now in a place that I'm not ready for? Like my son jumping into the car and saying, well, I'm just going to go today. He can do that, but it's not going to end well because he's just not ready. And if he trusts dad enough to wait, dad will tell him when he's ready. And so waiting on God, of course, Isaiah 40, right? They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall uh, walk and not faint. And we see that promise. We see that reality that waiting is not a fun thing, but it is often a necessary thing. What do we know about sorrow? Anything else on waiting? Waiting requires patience, yes, very, very much. Very good. Nathaniel? Oh, okay. Andrea? Yep. Yep. Uh, he strengthens us for it, and then he strengthens us through it, right? Both of those. Very good. Okay, what do we know about sorrow? And it's not fun. It is not fun. Sarah? It will pass. It's a valley you have to walk through on foot a lot of times, huh? Sam? Mm -hmm. Yep. First Corinthians ten thirteen. God does not give us trials, temptations that he, that we cannot bear and that he cannot help us to bear. This is Kimberly. Mm -hmm. Yep. God is not ignorant of the human emotion and reality of sorrow. Andrea? Right. Yep, God is not... She said he does not, God does not ask us just to get over it. Um, God does not uh, inherently rebuke sorrow. There are times where God will say, why are you sorrowing? Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in, in a little bit. But he does not ask us just to get over it. Nathaniel, was there a thought? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oftentimes we understand something by its antithesis, right? We, we understand if, if, if nothing were joyful, if nothing were sorrowful, then, then what, what, would, what would joy be, right? How would, how would you feel joy if you, did not, if you could not contrast it with sorrow? Um, and so sorrow has a necessary role. Anything else? Okay, so we have these things that, are, that we know, that we know in, in the context of how we feel. And 
Again, this doesn't necessarily mean that we stop feeling, nor should we. But it does mean that we, I, I, I was talking to them, and this was years ago, there was a young lady at the church here, she's not here anymore, and I asked her how she was doing. And she said, well, I'm, there's some wrestling going on between me and the Lord, and, and there's some, some difficult things right now. And, and my wife and I you know, have, have this little saying, it's okay to wrestle with the Lord as long as you know that the Lord's going to win. Um, in other words, I, I'm struggling for one reason or another, but I do have in the back of my mind that at the end of my struggles, God is going to win this. I'm, you know, he, I, I'm, I'm going to come, I'm going to come over to his side. I'm going to, I'm going to take his way. And right now I might be, it might be that I don't see it or I might be throwing a fit and being selfish or whatever it is, but I, but God is going to win. I, 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 I'm going to yield, um, just maybe not at this moment, or, or I'm going to get through this dark time and, and, and the Lord will prevail in it, just maybe not right at this moment. Uh, recognizing, again, the Lord in the midst of these things. And we come to then this idea in verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest mine enemies say I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. There's not a... a th th these are interesting verses. Um, there's a lot of opinions as to what these verses mean. And not a great deal of consensus. Um, lighten mine eyes literally means to make luminous, to enlighten or to illumine Many uh, people said that they felt, as, uh, believed that David was actually in some sort of physical danger of death here. Um, others believed that this was uh, the nature of his sorrow. Um, others that, that, and he was asking God to, to, uh, to bring him out of that time of sorrow. I haven't fully made up my mind. I don't know that, that there's enough here to say so. But I am compelled to think that David, well, there's the element of with his enemy here that, that perhaps he is actually fearful of his life. Um, and yet when he says, lighten mine eyes, enlighten me or illumine me or make me luminous, that sort of an idea, um, it does seem as though he's seeking unto the Lord, maybe not necessarily for something physical, but for something that's more spiritual or emotional in nature. Don't know what to say on that. Any thoughts, Nathaniel? Mm. So you would take it as a physical, would you take it physically then, that there was a, a danger of death here? Yeah. 
Correct. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, that it's most likely quite metaphorical as it would relate to his actual eyes. Yeah, and, and that's you know, the debate that, that many have, and I, I would think similarly that, that there, there's very much so a, a mental or spiritual or an emotional idea here, um, also possibly a physical. Uh, either way, it, it, it is that he, he's, his enemy is prevailing over him, and he, is, he feels as though whatever is happening, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, that if he were to falter and fall, that it would mean his enemies victory. And as we've seen from psalm after psalm, uh, David has this real thing about the enemies of the righteous uh, prevailing, right? And he, he prays against that quite regularly and quite vehemently. And um, of course, we see that last phrase, and those that trouble me rejoice when I am moved. So it's also very possible that this whole thing is about some sort of spiritual determination, in other words, that he is moved from faith or moved from, uh, um, per perhaps it could be moved from uh, his position in the kingdom, like with Absalom, right, when he fled. If I am moved, if I'm actually overcome here, um, what will that mean for your great name? And what will that mean for the nation if, if those that trouble me are able to rejoice in my, ab my ac actual demise? So that, that could be the physical idea or it could be a spiritual or an emotional idea uh, but that is his request. So he, he feels this helplessness and that God is not there, that God is far from him, something that is not uncommon to feel in times of trouble. Then he, he makes this request to the Lord and this request then gives way to verses five and six, which would seem out of place here if it were not so common in the scriptures. But I have trusted in thy mercy. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. What do we know about sorrow? You know, Nathaniel had said when we were talking about time, time is relative, time is subjective. Time is subject to perception. Is sorrow subject to perception? No. no. Peter says no. Peter, right? And that one's Paul. No, Paul? Paul? Peter and Paul, okay. You're Paul, you're Peter, okay, good, good. Paul says no. What do you think? Sarah? It's a place to be stubborn. Okay. It's, it's, it is amplified by your soul attention on it or your distraction from it. Yep. So, as I think of this, my, my answer would be sometimes. That you have perhaps experienced times where you have been sorrowful and it's almost, if I can say it this way, beyond your perception. You say, I don't know why I should be, I don't know why I'm so sorrowful about this, but I am, and it's just there. But then as we look in the scriptures, and this is what Sarah was saying, there's a difference between being sorrowful and staying sorrowful. And this is something that is very important for us to know about the nature of how we view this world around us. We've talked over the last several weeks about, uh, not, not necessarily 
last several weeks of Tuesdays. But we've talked throughout various places in the last several weeks, couple of months, about orienting ourselves properly to this world as it relates to seeing things that are physical, but then also understanding the spiritual, right? Uh, having, being in this world, but not of this world, recognizing uh, the things that this world offers and the things that this world contains while simultaneously understanding that we're living for the world that is to come. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And a part of this is gaining a perspective on life. And in the Christian life, one of, the, one, one of what, what I often call the paradoxes of the Christian life is how we see the world and what the way that the world interacts with us compels us to feel. So consider some of these verses with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We're going to talk about this quite a bit on Sunday morning in our... Um, spiritual warfare series as we get into the idea of the tools of our enemy and, and the like. But um, as Paul speaks about fighting a spiritual warfare, he says, of course, the weapons are not carnal. They're not swords and shields and spears and guns and, and tanks and such. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And then he specifically says here, notice the prepositional phrasing, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Casting down those things that would get into our minds, those, those falsehoods, those, uh, those um, conjurings that would exalt my senses above my knowledge of God that would exalt my feelings above my knowledge of God, putting them back in their proper place, bringing our thoughts into captivity, knowing how I feel, acknowledging my frustrations or my sorrows or my confusions, but not allowing them to run away with me. And this is what David does in that psalm. He, he acknowledges his sorrow and his frustration then he runs back to the Lord, even though he just asked God, why are you so far from me? And why are you hiding your face from me? He runs back to the Lord. And at the end of this, he says, I will sing unto the Lord. And then this wonderful phrase, which we'll get back to, because he hath dealt bountifully with me. That does not bear the... Uh, the Verse 1, he's saying, you're hiding from me. Verse 6, he's saying, you're dealing bountifully with me. Strange, but true. Strange, but true. Because what David knows about all that God has done for him and about all that the Lord is doing for him overrides how he feels in that moment. 2 Corinthians 12, this is, this is Paul's struggle with this. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think 
of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there is given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. He was grieved about this. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice this. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We'll pick up there in just a moment in verse 10. Do you see what Paul just said? I, he has this thorn in the flesh. He, it, it grieved him so much that he asked God three times to remove it from him. God said, no, my grace is sufficient. This is a means by which my strength can be magnified through your weakness. And then what happened to Paul's perception of that thorn in the flesh? It changed entirely, didn't it? All of a sudden, what was his sorrow is now something that he will gladly bear. Doesn't mean he's feeling better. Doesn't mean if, it's, if it was his eyes, it doesn't mean he can see better. Doesn't mean the pain has gone away. But his perception of these things, I've talked about this before. Um, when you work, when you exercise, there's a measure of pain right? You're chopping wood, you're going for a run, whatever it might be, and, and you feel this pain. And then the next day, you might really feel pain, right? Because you're sore. We went and played hockey a couple of weeks ago on Saturday morning from the men of the church. The next morning, I was sore. Some of that soreness was because I took a bunch of pucks in the shins, when I was playing goalie. Uh, that's still sore, in fact. Um, but then the other soreness was muscles that aren't normally worked being worked, right? You're turning, you're skating, you're doing things, and there are muscles that aren't normally working that are working, and those muscles tore a little bit, and then they heal back stronger, and that's a process of you getting stronger. Well, in any number of circumstances, when you're doing repetitious exercise of some sort, that pain can actually start to feel good. Have you ever, have you ever been there? You say, no, no, Pastor, I haven't. But yeah, right? Where, where you feel that burn and you say, that's good. You walk away saying, I know I did something today because you feel the burn. It, do, it didn't feel good when you were way out of shape. You felt like you wanted to throw up and that burn said, I have to stop because, it's, because that burn, I have to stop. But then as you push through that, all of a sudden you feel that burn and you say, yeah, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm, that's what I'm here to do, right? You're, the pain is still there, but your perception of it has changed. Chuck, was that a yes, I felt that, or did you have something to say? Yes, he's felt that. And it can be a good pain. It's a strange thing, but it's a good pain in in a certain, certain light, in a certain, from a certain perspective. But it's a perspective thing, isn't it? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You can be in a place of suffering or of sorrow 
but to know that you are where God wants you. Therefore, though you are suffering in some way, though there is a measure of sorrow in your heart, it will not overcome. And in fact, it actually wells in you a measure of joy or gladness, not in that you are experiencing it, but that in that the Lord has you where he wants you and God is doing something. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you, for in nothing I am behind the very chiefest of apostles, though I be nothing. Paul says, I will glory with all my might in this weakness, because this weakness is God's strength. That's a perspective issue. Acts 5, 40 and 41, the apostles are called before the Sanhedrin. The Bible says, and to him they agreed, uh, that would be the Sanhedrin speaking among themselves, and when they had called the apostles and, beat it, and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they call the apostles before them. They say, we're going to speak in this name. We're going to obey God rather than men. They come together. Uh, um, is it Gamaliel who says, you can't resist this if this is of God? They say, oh, okay. So they bring the apostles together. They beat them all. And then they send them on their way. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's a perspective issue, isn't it? I have just been beaten simply for speaking the name of Christ and told never to do it again, of which I have already told them that's not going to happen. So I'm on their radar too. Thank you, God, that I might be counted worthy to suffer for your name. I've been shamed. I've been beaten. Thank you, Lord. It's not because they were looking at their wounds and saying, these are great. It's because with eyes of faith, their heart was able to be exalted above the physical circumstances and see the spiritual see that God had something else going on here. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 1 Peter is a book talking all about persecution. And yet Peter says, if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, be happy. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. Be happy. Why? Because you're suffering for righteousness' sake. And there's reward in that, Christian. Again in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. What David is expressing in Psalm 13 
is that though he was in a place where he did not understand what God was doing and his enemies were over him and he did not want them to be victorious and he was so sorrowful, in fact, that he uses these words about death, uh, the sleep of death. We we don't know whether that's physical, whether he literally was so aggrieved about this that he felt he was going to die there. That can happen. I don't know if you've ever been that grieved, but people can be that grieved that they, they literally feel as though they cannot move forward, they, that, that there's no place to go. Not that they're suicidal, just that they might as well just curl up and die, and they might. That's how they feel. And yet, David says, I'll trust in your mercy. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because God, even in the midst of this sorrow and my enemy prevailing over me or or seeking to prevail over me, you have dealt bountifully with me. My heart is beating. My mind is with me. I can serve the Lord. I can reflect you properly. You are in control. You have always cared for me. Who will harm me if I be a follower of that which is good? They may harm me physically, but what can man do unto me if the Lord is on my side? So you have difficult things. You're being asked to bear a difficult burden. And maybe those burdens are emotional burdens. Maybe they're spiritual burdens. Maybe children, it's a burden of submission. And you've got to align yourself with your parent when your parent is telling you what you do not want to hear or a direction you do not want to go. And you don't like it and it's not fun, and it's not easy. And yet, rejoice in that you have the opportunity to align with Christ by aligning with your parents. And there is joy in that. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's uh, a, a physical circumstance. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe uh, it's, maybe it's a... a um, a weakness, right? So we all have these things. Uh, a, uh, a self-consciousness, something that you feel is wrong with you. You're not tall enough. You're not uh, um, fast enough. You're not pretty enough. Uh, you don't have any hair. Uh, you know, whatever it might be. You're losing your hair, whatever. You know, and, 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 you, you, and for, for one reason or another, there's a vulnerability there. Because we all have vulnerabilities, don't we? We all have areas where we're sensitive or where we are vulnerable. And that vulnerability can be an open wound or you can say, Lord, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And because I am fearfully and wonderfully made, I will leave this with you and I will rejoice because you have dealt bountifully with me. It's a matter of perspective. Now again, Paul was right. It doesn't mean that you are necessarily going to stop feeling what you're feeling. But how you perceive what you are feeling can change. Thoughts? Yes, Paul. Feelings never go away. Feelings never go away? Until well, our feelings our feelings can change, uh, but there are some things that don't go away until the Lord comes. Like 
are tr uh, there, there will always be troubles, right, on this earth, and things that make us have sorrows and, and fears, those will not go away until the Lord comes. You're absolutely right about that. Th there will be times of happiness and times of sadness and times of fear and times of joy, but we're going to keep on that roller coaster uh, of emotions, of, of, uh, of the ups and the downs until the Lord comes. That's right. But we don't have to live, under, we don't have to live on that roller coaster, right? And that's the idea of joy. So I often describe joy as a, as a, uh, a piece that endures in spite of circumstances. So joy is here. Our emotions are here. And they're going up and down, right? And our emotions are on the roller coaster of life. But we have this plane that is above those things called joy that sustains regardless. Even if we don't understand, simply because we know, as David knows, thou hast dealt bountifully with me, Lord. What else? Sam. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we do have a distinct advantage. And, and the Old Testament saints knew of this, right? They wrote of the hope that would, would, would be through Christ, and they were wondering about it. We have that, right? We have the Spirit of God indwelling us. And uh, when Jesus spoke to his disciples of their comfort, he, he spoke in terms of the comforter, right? Who is the Spirit of God. And we cannot, uh, we cannot forget that we have the Spirit of God um, to work in us as we walk in His, in His truth and in the Spirit, uh, to work in us His peace and His love and His joy and His long suffering and His gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. Anything else? So, uh, as we close here, the the reminder is of the Lord and of his workings even when we can't see it. And not that this should make us not feel things, but that we can have... My, my, uh, my um, children have been reading with, with Sarah lately, Pollyanna. Um, and the book Pollyanna, in it, the, the little girl Pollyanna um, has a game that her father taught her, where the glad game, right? And the idea behind, my daughter is very uh, tickled at the moment, I think. The, the idea behind this game was that you can always find something to be glad about. And the concept there is that the circumstances haven't changed, but the perspective on circumstances can change, right? And of course, there's a, a fairly surface level concept to it in, as it would be presented uh, in, that, in that little fictional tale. But um, we do see that same principle heightened to its fullest form here in these psalms and in these verses that you're going to feel what you're going to feel. You can't be led by those emotions. You're led by your knowledge. But how you perceive what you are feeling is not etched in stone.
And maybe, just maybe it is that these feelings, these emotions, these sorrows, these fears, these confusions, these anxieties can actually, uh, if you think about them properly, redound to God's faithfulness, redound to God being able to be strong in your weakness, redound to opportunities to glorify God in ways that maybe otherwise you would never have. Not to mention the fact that if you've ever been through a time of great sorrow or fear or confusion that has strengthened you and led to times of spiritual growth that you never, ever could have had otherwise. And a lot of that is looking back, right? So what do we do? We know that we're going to look back on these things with some measure of understanding, some measure of recognition that the Lord has done great things. So I'm not going to be as uh, overcome today knowing that tomorrow I'll look back and see what the Lord was doing. I don't know what it is today, but I do know that it, that it is today. So it is well with my soul. Right. Final thoughts. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.